Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. On today's episode, we continue the story of Lucas McCabe and his compatriots in the Malifaux Exploration Society as they explore the mysterious sunken city beneath the bayou. We join the intrepid explorers aboard the MES Shorefoot. I hope you enjoy the conclusion of Lost and Found, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you once again by the Malifaux Exploration Society. We will stop at nothing to uncover Malifaux's lost secrets and unearth ancient, never-born technology. To all the other wannabe treasure hunters out there, be warned. The next forgotten tomb you attempt to plunder will become your own. Shouldn't they be back by now? It's been almost an hour, Lucas snapped. Luna growled her assent, and Sidia lit another cigarette. It's barely been twenty minutes, Sidia said between drags. Depends on how far they had to dig, Jessie replied, as though she'd been expecting a delay. Often architectural features are buried under silt or debris. The team might still be hauling dirt. Anyway, Vox channels are open. We know that they touched down and are investigating. We would have received another signal if something happened. Lucas scratched his chin. Even for him, this nonchalance seemed tantamount to recklessness. Something feels wrong. What makes you say that? My gut, he said. I've got an instinct for when a job's gone bad. Feelings are dangerous, Jesse retorted coolly. You've got your gut, I've got my training. I've been with the MES for a long time, and I know protocol. Protocol? Lucas stared at her blankly, and then directed his gaze to the weapons locker that housed the spear guns. Are your men archaeologists or mercenaries? Just who the hell are these MES people? They are called enthusiasts with considerable resources, just like Ludwig said. Everything he told you is true. MES members have a thirst for adventure but understand that their social positions or occupations inhibit them from actually exploring. So they live vicariously through people like us, who can. They hire us, we bring results, and we get paid. Pretty straightforward, she said shiftily. Mm-hmm, murmured Lucas, grinning. This was not an unfamiliar story. So Gretchen is just an enthusiast, then. She seems more like a politico to me. Reminds me of Lucius Mattison. Jessie's eyes widened, and the fire behind them seemed to flicker for a brief moment. Honestly, I don't know much about Gretchen. No one does, least of all the contractors. I've always worked with Ludwig, but she took a particular interest in the sunken city, and in you. 
Although she's not the wealthiest of all the overseers, I've heard that her connections run deep. She knows things. What do you mean? Well, how to find talent, for one. I may not like your methods or your attitude, Mr. McCabe, but as I've said, few in Malifaux can say they've been where you have and survived. Gretchen has a knack for finding people with particular skills and the perfect jobs to test them with. It's no wonder that she cornered you and invited you to be more... active as a participant in the MES, she said with just the faintest hint of jealousy. And how does she know who to seek out? Jessie's envy shifted into concern. I'm not sure. She recruited me, too. And I made myself very difficult to find. She looked at the curiosity etched in Luca's face. Scorned lover, she said with a wink. The problem resolved itself, she concluded, checking the magazine of her rifle. Suddenly, a rasping, sputtering noise split the silence. What the hell is that? Lucas interrupted. The pneumatic pump connected to the diving helmets gurgled and began to spark. Luna jumped to her hind legs with a whine. It's just a filtration system, Jesse answered. It sucks out the carbon dioxide from the diving helmets and replaces it with fresh oxygen. She cut herself off, a look of confusion on her face as she put her thumb against one of the wax tubes. There's no resistance. Either they've taken off the suits, or... Or, Sidia's face contorted. Or they're not breathing. Jessie sat up and shuffled around the shorefoot. Within a few minutes, she'd thrusted a diving suit and a spear gun into their arms. Luca scratched the back of his head. Remember the last time we wore these things? He said to Sidia. I'm never going anywhere near an ocean again. Don't remind me. The bay was no prettier beneath the waves than it was above them. As he descended with Sadir and Jesse, Lucas could barely see a meter in front of him through the inky darkness. He found this vast, sludgy expanse far more terrifying than the cramped confines of even the most sinister tombs. Here an attack was possible from any direction. He felt exposed and vulnerable, even with Sadir at his side. Since his net gun and whip wouldn't work underwater, all he had were his wits, his blade, and a spindly spear gun that he had never fired before. How useful would it be against the creatures that thrived in the bayou's sinister depth? How far have we gone? Lucas looked up to the surface. It wasn't shimmering like he expected. Barely any light refracted through the mud and detritus. All was dark, like a perpetually expanding black square. Judging from how much slack we've got left on the breathing tubes, it can't be any more than 30 feet. If the water were clear, everyone at the top would still see us, Jesse answered. But it's not, Lucas said, his grip tightening on his machete. After several ten seconds, they finally reached the bottom of the mire. Follow their trail, Jesse gesticulated, the previous team's tubes, which bobbed in the gloom like phantom worms. Sadia assented and took off, propelling himself through the water. As they advanced, their boots kicked up little clots of silt, reeds, and small animal bones, limiting their already negligible visibility. Jessie reached into the pocket of her diving suit and pulled out what looked like a glass rod that shimmered with soulstone dust. 
At the release of its cap, it crackled to life with a sparkling pale blue glow. The darkness was still oppressive, but at least they could see a little further in front of them. Here, she offered, pulling out another and tossing it to Lucas, who caught it as it drifted lazily towards him. Don't be reckless with that. These flares are expensive. The moment he pulled off its cap, he nearly dropped it in surprise. The light revealed the edge of a massive weathered stone archway carved with intricate runes and covered in creeping underwater vines. Lucas realized that it was the mouth of a tunnel that led further beneath the depths. Jessie pushed a button on the ethervox attached to her helmet. Captain, the team stumbled in some kind of cave. McCabe and I are pursuing. Stand by. The radio crackled again as the crew of the Shorefoot confirmed. Well, she asked with as much bravado as she could muster. Are you two just going to steer or follow? She brushed past them, weapon and light drawn. Resigned to the worst, Lucas proceeded, his own weapon raised. They had barely taken a few steps before almost total darkness swallowed them. It was like they were descending into the belly of a great beast. Do you see these carvings? Jessie held her flare towards the cave walls. The markings look old, maybe older than some of the runes our team found in the sewers beneath Malifaux City. The writing was spidery and sharp, displaying both exaggerated curves and sharp corners, like a blend between cuneiform and Sanskrit. Look, said Lucas, pointing into the darkness. We're actually ascending. I think those are steps. He raised his own light, revealing the contour of a staircase carved into the rock. Out in the distance, barely discernible, the light's strange refraction forced him to do a double take. That's an air pocket. Jesse, do you think... He didn't have to finish the thought. She made a beeline for the staircase as quickly as the water would allow, pulling on the previous team's air tube to propel herself forward. Lucas and Sadir followed, and soon both their heads split the surface. The three of them emerged in a great antechamber of carved stone, illuminated only by their flares. Still treading water, Jessie removed her helmet and rubbed her eyes as if she did not trust her own sight. Lucas did the same, and hoisted himself hastily out of the pool. What the hell? Are you seeing this? And that smell? Is it blood? The floor of the entire chamber was covered with translucent pearl-like growths, interconnected at the base by slippery, fleshy tendrils that zigzagged and spiraled in a whirl of chaos. Like pustules, the pale orbs pulsated against the light of his torch, with a miasmic, milky shimmer. They varied in size. Some were as small as cricket balls, but others were the height of Lucas' shin and the diameter of dinner plates. Jessie extricated herself more gracefully from the water, planting her feet carefully so as not to touch any of the clusters. Eggs, she concluded, with a worried glance. From what? asked Lucas, as he removed his diving suit. It felt good to be mobile again. He motioned to help Jessie shed her diving suit too. She snorted and dismissed him with a wave, effortlessly unzipping the damp fabric from behind. I'm not sure. That's what bothers me. 
Jesse reached down and slipped the Ethervox unit out of the helmet's casing. Captain, can you read me? She twiddled the dial to change the frequency, but she only found static. Alice Rock must be jamming our signal. No wonder the other team couldn't contact us. God, it reeks in here. It's not just the rock, said Lucas. Moments before, his light had penetrated into the room's darkest corner, and he almost dropped his equipment in shock. Look. Jessie couldn't find the words to express her horror. Her mouth twisted in disgust, remaining silent. A pile of three mangled corpses leaked fresh blood onto the stone tiles, each in a truly horrific state of dismemberment. Jessie almost wretched. Why well, could have done this, she said, inching closer with trepidation that belied even her usual confidence. I don't know, but I bet it's whatever the hell came out of those. Lucas cast another disgusted glance at the egg clusters. We can't stay here. He forced Jesse to look away. We can't leave either, choked Jesse, trying to compose herself. Not until we know what happened. We can't send another team down here blind. She's right, Siddiqui, agreed Sadir, although the idea seemed to pain him. Resigned, Lucas exited the chamber with Jesse on his heels, and Sadir bringing up the rear, navigating carefully through the eggs as if they were landmines. The bodyguard had left his machine gun on the boat, and Lucas could tell he was regretting the decision. Whatever had annihilated their predecessors must have been deadly enough to take out a trained team. Their spears might as well have been toothpicks. The room connected to a long hallway, floored with cracked terracotta tiles. Strange murals adorned the walls. Stick-like figures bearing libations, hunting animals, or playing strange instruments. Although the drawings were simple, they were far from primitive. Much of the iconography was obscured by the creeping tendrils connecting the eggs growing atop them. The lustrous web of the gooey rope seemed to sweat black liquid through their exterior membranes. Dark fluid trickled eerily down the walls, and pulled in between the cracks of the floor tiles like running ink. I don't understand, mused Jessie as she bent down, her face inches from one of the eggs. That black stuff. I think it's embryonic liquid. Does it really matter, girl? asked Sadir, pointedly pulling her back from the egg. We shouldn't be down here for long without reinforcements, muttered Lucas. This is stupid, and if I'm saying that, then we're already really in deep. Wait, snapped Jessie, craning her neck. If you think I'm just going to stick around after what we just... No, not that. Shut up, I think I heard something. Lucas immediately fell silent. Sadia sensed it too. A strange, high-pitched cry shattered the silence. It was grating, like nails on a chalkboard, but it had a consistent rhythm. A long shriek, followed by two short bursts, and then the cycle repeated again. It's coming up from ahead, Sadia said, and without further hesitation drew his blade and advanced deeper into the darkness. Wait, don't go so far, warned Jesse, but he was already gone. Moments later, they arrived in a great chamber, even bigger than the one they just exited. Its vaulted ceiling was decorated with long, elaborate arches, 
each featuring hundreds of unseeing stone faces, eyes hollow and cold. Hundreds, if not thousands, of pale eggs grew from between every crevice, like lustrous barnacles. Some were so high that they looked no bigger than tiny pearls. The same black fluid churning in the capillaries dripped with a spine-chilling tingle from the face's eye sockets. It was as if they were weeping. At the very centre of the chamber was a great stone head, carved at least twenty feet in diameter. Its eyes were sculpted closed, as though the subject was caught in a meditative trance, but its mouth was left agape. Atop its head was a thorny crown cast in what looked like bronze, coated in a thick layer of impenetrable, bubbling verdigris, and at its base. Weird. Lucas approached one of the strangest contraptions he had ever seen. He knew that like the rest of the ruins, it had to be as old as Malifaux itself, but its thick metal was still sleek and void of any rust, as if it were recently cast. Just slightly taller than Lucas himself, the machine was shaped like a cube, and each of its faces displayed a vast array of cogs and gears, whirling with clockwork precision. Their finely cut teeth and intricate engravings flaunted truly superior craftsmanship. Most strange of all, the organic tube-like growths winding their way through every inch of this godforsaken dungeon seemed to leach into the machine. The arteries connecting the eggs had punctured the metal right to its core. Whatever black liquid they housed came directly from the inside. In the centre of the device rested a faded blue-green disc. Decorative flanges protruded from its surface, carved with strange symbols that neither Lucas nor Jesse could decipher. As the disc toiled slowly in time with the gears, it emitted the shrieking sound. At least that was one mystery solved. What do you make of this? he asked Jesse, as he pressed his hand against the disc's smooth surface, feeling it caress the skin of his palm as it turned with little resistance. It was warm to the touch. Honestly, I don't know. The symbols are the same as the carvings from the cave and the murals outside, she said pointing her thumb back towards the entrance of the chamber. It looks valuable, and the craftsmanship is exquisite. It's obviously emblematic of a society that develops specialized labor, metallurgy by the looks of it, but this artifact is too functional to be decorative. This whole device, it could be anything. A weapon, a tool, a key. So it's worthless, along with this junk, said Lucas crestfallen. At the base of the machine were several pottery shards and coins, but little else of obvious value. He pocketed them anyway. Don't be stupid, said Jesse angrily. If Gretchen's intelligence is correct, that's ancient Neverborn tech, for lack of a better word. It's more valuable than anything, maybe even soulstone. I mean, think about the size of the room protecting it. It looks like some kind of royal court. The stone head in the middle, maybe it's a throne. Or what if we're in a vault? More like a prison, Lucas mumbled under his breath, staring at the disc inside. Jesse either didn't hear him or chose to ignore him. Her tone suddenly became excited. We should take part of the machine back. Maybe it might help explain what... Down, 
Lucas tackled Jessie to the ground as a pale blur whizzed right past where she'd been standing. It landed on all fours and straightened itself upright, flanked on either side by two similar hulks, which had also seamlessly emerged from the shadows. Salurids, shouted Jessie, throwing Lucas off her as she sprang to her feet. Somehow these beasts were nearly twice as big as any she'd ever encountered. More hauntingly, their slimy scales were albino white, and the glassy blood-red eyes flared like burning coals. The eggs! They're silurid eggs! Damn it, I knew I'd seen them before, but they're usually green and unconnected to each other. That goop must have mutated them. Have you ever seen anything like that? Lucas asked, as he turned the dial of his spear gun, whirring it to life. No, said Jessie worriedly, her eyes on each of the beasts, waiting for them to strike. Salurids aren't like other animals. There's only one recorded species. Even though they sometimes have different skin colors and share taxonomic similarities with a few other bioorganisms at the genus level. Lucas rolled his eyes. Jesse, I speak six languages. Science isn't one of them. He tossed the flare to the ground, shifted the spear gun to his offhand, pulled the whip out that was attached to his belt, and immediately started cracking it toward the pack. A fine mist of black blood danced through the air with each snap, and the creatures roared in fury, approaching nearer every second. The distance was closing fast. Got a plan? Because I've only got one spear, cried Lucas, as more of the massive beasts joined the fray. Get back! Get back! Jessie shouted as she dropped her flare and sniped the middle siluri cleanly through the throat. The beast was blasted backwards but within seconds it managed to climb up to rejoin its companions in the attack, dark blood still gushing from its neck. The attack seemed to have little effect. Iker trickled down from their wounds, the liquid dark and shiny against their pale bodies. Sadir fired a precise shot that nailed one of the creatures in the cartilage, right where its webbed left arm connected to its torso. By any measure, the spear should have ripped the appendage clean off, but the Silurid barely slowed, making yet another swift pass that Lucas barely managed to duck. The creature fought through the pain and jumped straight towards Lucas. With a guttural screeching croak, Sadir leapt up to intercept it with just enough force to alter its trajectory. Both killers became tangled in a swirling knot of moving limbs. Sadir was lucky. The beast had landed on its back, and the bodyguard sunk his Murtu blade into the tender flesh, exposed beneath its jaws, pinning it to the ground even though it was nearly twice his size. He then rammed his fist into the wound, and with a brutal crunch ripped the Silurid's lower jaw clean off. Immediately Sadir doubled back in pain, his hand blistered and raw. Black blood! Don't touch it! He held his wounded arm close as he retrieved his fallen blade with the other. Before Jesse was able to reload his spear, Another Silurid threw itself towards Sadir. She lost count of their attackers. There were simply too many, and the three explorers were too poorly equipped. No, Lucas shouted as he shot a spear into the Silurid's side. When it didn't seem to deter its attack, he dropped his spear gun, drew his machete, and made a beeline towards Sadir. Damn it, Jessie hissed. She tossed aside her spear gun and drew her own blade. After puncturing one of the beasts through the ribcage, she kicked it off her blade with just enough strength and fury to trip up the companion behind it. She blocked another blow by severing her attacker's arm at the elbow, 
careful to avoid the ensuing jet of black blood. Bobbing and weaving, she bought Lucas and Sadir enough time to fight their way up off the ground. Suddenly, a blood-curdling cry erupted throughout the chamber, echoing with unholy fury. For the second time since they had arrived in this godforsaken place, Jessie's eyes widened in horror, as the largest Silurid spawn mother she had ever seen let out a fearsome roar. It had emerged from the mouth of the sculpted head, leaping into the fray and causing its smaller kin to scatter. Even while hunched, the beast was taller than Jessie, twice as thick, and albino white like all the others, although its comb was blood red. Several spiny, cancerous growths clung to its rippling muscles, and the armoured scales of its thick hide were hardened and cracked, shimmering like uncut diamonds. It hunched forward eagerly, gills flaring. An instant later, it rushed the three interlopers, forcing them to scatter. Jessie rolled to avoid the first swipe. The spawn mother's filthy claws barely grazed her arm. Had she delayed a fraction of a second longer, the beast would have taken her head. She fell hard on the stone floor, wounded but alive. The sensation of blood smarting on her skin spiked her adrenaline further. Jessie clambered to her feet as Lucas and Sadir darted in between the monster's legs, each slicing deep into its calves. The creature barely acknowledged the wounds as they slowly seeped black blood. With inhuman speed it twirled again and took further swipes at the new prey. Go on, get out of here, I'll distract it, shouted Lucas, as he swatted away yet another blow with his blade. It punctured the spawn mother's arm just above the elbow joint. Just go. Rather than retreat, the colossal creature raised its arm. Lucas' blade was still entrenched, and the motion lifted the relic hunter several feet above the ground with it. He let go with the machete, but before he hit the ground, the spawn mother caught him with a vice-like grip in the other hand. Squeezing, the beast opened its great maw and craned its neck forward, as if ready to pick the meat off a kebab. Jessie rushed forward. Unsure of what she was doing and acting on pure instinct and desperation, she slid toward the two burning soulstone flares on the ground. As soon as they were in her grip, she slammed the bottom ends against the stone, triggering a kaleidoscopic array of blue and white light sparking from both sides. For the briefest instant, the room shone a brilliant, blinding white, illuminating the vastness of the chamber. The flares sizzled to a voluminous roar, until suddenly they did nothing at all, as though the surrounding darkness consumed all light and sound. In that black and silent moment, Jessie tossed both flares in the spawn mother's direction. Upon impact, the light and sizzling roar re-emerged tenfold, followed immediately thereafter by an explosion of blue flame. The spawn mother gurgled in fury and pain as the fire began to consume its flesh. It dropped Lucas in an effort to block its eyes from the light, then reached for its back, desperately trying to staunch the flames. It sunk to its knees, keening in pain. Immediately, the other Silurids in the pack rushed toward their fallen queen. Let's go before they regroup, shouted Lucas. Come on! With lightning speed, he rushed toward the device and extricated the disc at the center, using Sadia's blade like a crowbar. They're not regrouping said Sadir as he began to sprint toward the exit, Jesse by his side. 
Lucas looked back. Sadia was right. The other Silurids simply began to feed on the Spawn Mother's charred flesh. You did well, Mr. McCabe. In fact, exceptionally well, my boy. Ludwig's eager voice rang from the Ethervok caster in the cabin's captain of the Surefoot. Lucas, Sadia, and Jesse had resurfaced less than an hour previously, and immediately contacted the MES for a full debrief. I always deliver, said Lucas, as if to brush off the praise. But he could not deny the dull, faint feeling of pride he felt slowly swelling in his chest. And I could not have done it without Jesse and her flo- It's true, the young woman interrupted, but Lucas performed plenty well on his own. Despite my hesitance, I don't believe we would have succeeded had it not been for his expertise. To Sadia's surprise, a smile had emerged on Lucas' lips. A genuine one. Excellent, Ludwig chortled approvingly, his voice still grating through the radio. He swiftly changed tack. Tell me, what exactly did you find? The thing is, we're not exactly sure. Lucas held out the disc, which had once spun in the center of the machine. Tell me more about the device, Ludwig pressed. We just don't know, Jesse admitted. Whatever it was, it was old. Tyrant tech, I'm certain. The machine dispersed some kind of embryonic fluid. It's highly corrosive. Like the Nephilim's black blood, suggested Lucas. Perhaps, Jesse responded cautiously. But I wouldn't jump to conclusions. There's still so much about the tyrants that we don't understand. Our knowledge about them seems to change every day. People are too eager to draw and spread false connections. The narrative gets distorted. Very true, answered Ludwig. Only once we have the disc can we study it more closely. Perhaps we can send another team down to study the chamber, too. At the very least, we ought to recover the bodies, he added grimly. No, said Lucas flatly. It's suicide. That place is crawling with Silurids. We barely escaped. The disc is all we have. It's not worth the risk. I agree, seconded Jesse reluctantly. We lost good men down there and it doesn't do us any good to lose more because of avarice or sentimentality. To this, Sadia nodded in approval. There was a long pause. Very well, said Ludwig, clearly disappointed, but nevertheless remaining pragmatic. We will pay you both most handsomely for your services. Mr. McCabe, your deal with Gretchen still stands. Keep the shards. You'll find Scrip and Akasha's soulstones awaiting you upon your return to Malifaux City. And one last thing. He paused dramatically. Yes. Have you forgotten about the other part of Gretchen's offer? What was that? asked Lucas, feigning ignorance. Welcome to the MES, Mr. McCabe. The Ethervox grew silent with a final crackle. He tried to remain stoic but even he couldn't suppress his excitement as he turned to Jesse. Guess we get to work together again. He held out his hand. I suppose so, said Jesse, shaking it with a firm grip. So, about those flares, Lucas said as he continued to hold her hand. Soulstones, huh? Soulstone dust, and not for sale. She let go of his grip, then walked out of the cabin with a wink 
and an exaggerated swagger that accentuated the curve of her hips. You're going soft, Siddiqui, warned Sadir, checking that Jesse was out of earshot. No, retorted Lucas with a grin. He lifted Sadir's injured hand and began to rebandage the wound. Suddenly the relic hunter gripped it tight. Sadir winced. An instant later he slacked his grip and gave Sadir a quick pinch. I'm just trying something different. That's all. Sadir grunted, clapped Lucas on the back, and returned to sharpening his blades as the surefoot charted a new course for Malifaux City. No more smoke and mirrors. If you want to send me a message, do it yourself. I'm sick of your games. Lucas slid a few of the pottery shards from the sunken city towards Yamaziko. I deserve better than that stunt you pulled by the Enclave a few weeks ago. The old tutor sat cross-legged across from him. Her eyes closed, as if in a meditative trance. The meeting reminded him of their last one-on-one -on -one encounter, which was equally unsettling. He coughed pointedly, and the wizened tutor's eyelids fluttered open. You are always so entitled and impatient, she grumbled, before holding up the pieces towards the light with her spindly digits. Curious, she whispered, more to herself than to Lucas as she eyed the artifact carefully and ran her fingers over the symbols etched into its surface. So, the sunken city is real after all. Yes and no. It exists, but there wasn't anything there, ma'am, Lucas lied, keeping his gaze locked onto hers without blinking. When the city was lost, the inhabitants must have evacuated with all their valuables. Or at least that's my theory. She pursed her lips skeptically. I wouldn't try and cheat you, continued Lucas, forcing his heart rate to stay steady. He knew she would be listening for it. The same thing happened in Pompeii before the eruption of Vesuvius. Believe me, I've seen this before. Anyway, you have no idea how difficult it was to smuggle even those trinkets back, he concluded. Damn MES archaeologists are cataloguing everything, especially the worthless crap. They want it for some museum. Tell me about the MES. Lucas rolled his eyes. Enthusiasts. Nothing more. They have a lot of cash, but not a lot of experience, he lied again. I wouldn't consider them a threat. This was not the outcome I was hoping for. Yamaziko put the shards down and wrapped her pale teal robes more tightly around her, clearly displeased. Still, I suppose the city's insignificance is not your fault. Consider your contract renewed, at least for the time being. Lucas was shocked. He expected to feel relief, but all he experienced was dread and emptiness. Searching for words, he finally offered, Now, about my payment. His expression grew expectant. Your life isn't enough, Mr. McCabe. The tutor pressed. Nevertheless, she reached into her robes and pulled out a dented trinket. He had hoped for scrip or soul stones. Lucas was about to express his disappointment, 
but upon recognising what it was, he grasped the pocket watch tenderly from her open palm with trembling fingers. He flipped open the lid with a familiar click, just as his mother had taught him as a child. He was surprised to find that the feeling was less satisfying than he had imagined over all these years. You've earned it. Don't give me another reason to take anything more valuable from you next time, Yamaziko scolded. With a sinking feeling in his stomach, Lucas realized that he hated working for the witch sitting across from him more than he'd ever cared for his most prized possession. Placing the watch in his breast pocket, he thought only of his next mission for the MES as he exited Yamaziko's chambers for what he sincerely hoped would be the last time. Alone with the dying embers of her smouldering hearth, Gretchen clutched the disc Lucas had taken from the sunken city between eager, spindly fingers. The elderly woman rotated it close to the firelight, admiring the intricate runes carved along the surface. She mouthed their syllables as each symbol met her gaze. Ra, Kora, Atla, Rolon, Tka. The artifact began to glow. Minet, Ama, Quata. It was so beautiful. Oh, how she had longed for this day. Once more unchained, Gretchen thought to herself, as she stopped the incantation, and the disc became inanimate once again. And there wasn't a damn thing anyone could do to stop it now. She winced as she cut her finger on one of the disc's sharper flanges. The blood that flowed from her veins was black as night. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. Join us next time for more Tales of Malifaux.